Well, it's great to see you this afternoon. I know we've got a number on holiday, but uh, it's good to have you with us. If you're here in the Octagon or watching online at home, uh, we are today in our third and final uh, talk in this mini-series looking at this, this tiny letter in the New Testament written from Paul to Titus. Uh, just very, very quick background. Again, if you're here for the first time or you're not sure, so this letter was written by the Apostle Paul uh, in around the middle of the first century to a younger leader called Titus, who was a co-worker of Paul's. They had been together on the island of Crete, uh, seen some people come to faith in Jesus, and then Paul had moved on and left Titus in Crete to establish church communities there. And then Sometime later, he wrote back to Titus some instructions uh, about how he should go about establishing healthy church communities there and what some of the priorities should be. And over the last weeks, uh, we looked in, in chapter one at the necessity of healthy leadership in the establishing of healthy churches. And uh, Paul was at pains to talk to Titus about the kind of man he should be looking for when appointing elders in the church. And then we looked last week at, at healthy lives and how each one of us in the church community has a part to play in, in seeing this church family, this body, be healthy and strong. That, that actually that we need older women to play their part as older women, to disciple younger women in the church. We need older men who will bring a kind of steadfastness and consistency and endurance and gentleness to the way that they love and lead and disciple others. We need younger women and younger men to play their parts too for the church to be healthy. And then we come today to chapter three, uh, and in this chapter, we're really going to look at healthy attitudes. So having talked about the need for healthy leadership and the need for healthy lives, we're now going to look today uh, at the necessity of each of us actually having a healthy attitude for the church to be one of health and vibrancy. And so we're going to look at that. So Paul begins in this final chapter by saying to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work. Now, the first group of people that Paul wants to talk to us about our attitude towards is rulers and authorities. And he says, remind them to be. Now, I just want to pause a minute on the word remind uh, because this is saying the church in Crete already knew this. Right, they already knew that they're supposed to be submissive to rulers and authorities. They already knew what Paul was writing to Titus about, but they needed to be reminded. Now, if you've been a Christian a while, there's probably very little you'll hear on a Sunday, actually, that's completely new to you. But there's a lot that we need reminding of. We might know it, but the question is, are we actively remembering it in such a way as it makes a difference in our everyday lives? Because if we're not, then we need reminding of it. And that's what Paul is doing here. See, when you hear something on a Sunday and you think, yeah, I know that, I already knew that. 
I'd encourage you to pause for a minute and think, well, I may already know it, (laughs) but actually, if I consider my words and actions, if I consider my attitude, if I consider my response, if I consider the way I'm living, do they display the fact that I know that? (laughs) And if not, then I need to be reminded in such a way as it makes a difference. And so here, first up, we're reminded of how our attitude towards rulers and authorities should be. That our attitude to rulers and authorities, both national and local government, should be one of humble submission, should be one of obedience and eagerness to do good. That's unless they ask us to disobey God, in which case we obey God and not men. But that's actually pretty rare. In fact, I would say I I can't think of anything that we are compelled at the moment in this country by the government to do, which goes against the laws of God, and therefore we are to live in humble, obedient submission to our government. We obey them, live peaceably, not constantly seeking to undermine or criticise them. And Paul then quickly turns his attention to our attitude to those who live and work around us, alongside us. Actually, he probably has in mind here and in focus those outside the church, non-Christians. So we begin with our attitude to rulers and authorities, and now we're on to our attitude to non-Christians. And he says this, that we need to be reminded, verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So our attitude to, towards those outside the church, and in, but those outside the church, is to be encouraging to them. Not tearing them down or bad-mouthing them, but being gentle and kind, generous towards them. Not dismissive or judgmental. I don't know about you, but my experience, sadly, is that many Christians can be very, very judgmental of people outside of the church. Like, oh, how could they do that? How could they? Why would they do that? And can begin to look down their nose at people outside of the church. Think, oh, they're just so bad. Be very dismissive and very scornful. But Paul here says, no, 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 that's not how you're to be. You're to be kind, not quarreling, gentle, showing courtesy towards people, even when you disagree with them or find them hard. And then Paul's underpinning for this, the the kind of reasoning he gives that will undergird this kind of response is a reminder for each of us of our own need of the grace of God. So having said, this is how we're to view non-Christians, not being dismissive or judgmental, but being gentle and extending courtesy towards them, he says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says, before you look down your nose at someone else, someone outside of the church who's living in a way that you don't think is right, before you're quick to pass judgment, remember, we too were once foolish and disobedient slaves to sin. All of us. Those unbelievers who you're tempted to look down your nose at, to judge, or pridefully think that you're somehow better than them because you don't do the things they do, or you do two things they don't do, you were just like them, Paul wants to remind us. Outside of Christ, apart from his kindness, apart from his grace, you were just like them. And you're standing now. Your righteousness, your relationship with God isn't earned by your good works. It's not, it's not because you've done anything remarkable or special. It's not because you're a better person than them. It's not because of anything you've done. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift from God. You've not done a bean to deserve it. I, I, you just need to hear that this afternoon. Okay? You haven't done anything to deserve God's grace. It's his gift. It's his kindness. It's his mercy. The inheritance of eternal life that you have is a gift. And when we understand that, when we allow that to actually sink in, when we remember it rather than just going, yeah, I know that. Like when we remember it actively in such a way as it makes a difference to our thoughts and actions and the way we view and treat other people, it levels us. It humbles us. It removes any ground for anything that we think we have for, for pride or boasting. When we remember our own need of the grace of God, what it does is it causes us to extend grace and compassion to others because we realize that just like them, we are in need of his kindness and his mercy. Just like them, we've done nothing to deserve it. Just like them, we, we were by nature actually objects of God's wrath, but in his kindness, he's shown mercy towards us. And it also, when we remember it, motivates us to do good works in obedience to God. And that's how Paul continues from verse 8. He says this, The saying is trustworthy. The saying is what he's just said. That, that kind of little condensed package of the gospel truth that we just read. Paul's saying that, that's trustworthy. We can rely on it. We can trust it. It's dependable. It's true. It's trustworthy. And, he says to Titus, and in turn to us, I want you to insist on these things so that those who've believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What Paul's saying here is the, the central and non-negotiable nature of the gospel is such that Titus is instructed to insist on it, to 
it, the, the word there, insist, means to, to stress it. It's like to so emphasize and repeat and remind people of the gospel that it just kind of feels like you're just banging this drum over and over and over again. It's, it's the gospel, it's the gospel, it's the gospel, it's the grace of God on your life that you need to hear that, that removes any grounds for boasting in your own goodness and leaves you in awe of God's grace and in turn extending mercy to others. He says to Titus, insist on it, stress it as of first importance. And then he goes on to explain that actually when you do that and when you teach what accords with sound doctrine as he's been encouraging Titus to do throughout this letter, what happens? It leads to good works. These things are excellent and profitable things. He says, insist on these things so that those who've believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The overflow of understanding the grace of God is that it motivates us to live for the glory of God and the good of those around us. And then Paul moves on next to our attitude towards false teaching. So we've had our attitude towards those in authority, our attitude towards those outside the church and how that's radically transformed when we understand and live in the good of the gospel. And then he moves on to how our attitude should be towards false teaching. We read from verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. There's a contrast here. He's just said to Titus, stress the gospel. Keep the main thing the main thing. Keep underlining and reminding people of sound doctrine. And then he goes, but avoid these things, <laughs> for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now in Crete, amongst others, they had people who would appeal to the genealogies who would appeal to their family history, their family tree, to their ethnic lineage as their grounds for confidence in their relationship with God. They'd say, we are the descendants of Abraham and therefore we are God's, that's our grounds for confidence. And they would actually not look to Christ as their grounds for confidence in their relationship with God. They would be looking for the, the family line that they were born into. And Paul says, avoid talking about those things. And then there were those like the circumcision party who we talked about, who were mentioned in chapter one. Jews who were insisting that Christians needed to be circumcised and follow the Jewish ceremonial laws in order to be acceptable to God. In other words, they were adding works to the grace of God. They were saying it's, it's, it's not enough. The work of Jesus isn't sufficient. You need, that's okay, but you also need to meet all of these requirements of the law. Debates about the law. And Paul says, don't get caught up in debating these things. Like, don't get sidetracked in debating these things. They're a waste of time. Avoid them, he says. And there are people who today have an unhealthy... I don't know if you've ever met any of these people. I have. I mean, you may have done. I don't know. But there are people today who, 
who have an unhealthy obsession with trying to chase down every kind of false teaching that crops up, particularly if it starts to come into the church in some way. And they're, they're, they're like constantly got their heresy radar up, like they're going to chase it down. They're, they're like obsessed with it. And Paul says, don't get bogged down there. Don't give too much time and focus to those things. Don't let it consume you. And in addition to false teaching, that's not not the only thing he talks about here. The other facet is issues of secondary importance. He talks about foolish controversies and dissension. People can make a big deal of and want to endlessly debate issues that are not actually central or essential to the Christian faith. And maybe you've experienced this. Now, it's not that there's no value to these things, But if you spend more time thinking and talking about secondary issues rather than the centrality of the gospel, if you spend more time thinking about whether you disagree or agree with other Christians on secondary things than you do on talking about the gospel or thinking about how you might share the love of God with those around you, then there's a problem. And Paul says this is unprofitable. We should be a people who stress the gospel, who insist on it because it's excellent and profitable. But we should also be a people who avoid controversies because they're unprofitable and useless. In other words, we're to keep our focus on what's true and what really counts. To remember that, to hold fast to sound doctrine, to insist on it, to proclaim the truth, to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, you might think that would be easy enough. Like, maybe this is one of those where you'll sit there and you go, yeah, we know. <laughs> but I want to remind you of our need to do this because division over these things was already a problem in the first century. Division in the church over secondary issues. And it's still a problem in the church today. And with that in mind, Paul moves on to talk about what our attitude should be towards divisive people in the church or people who major on minor issues or want to make secondary issues the most important thing. They don't avoid controversies, they pursue them. And so we read this from verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. See, there are people who stir up division in the church. Sadly, there always have been, and until Jesus comes back, there always will be. Okay? So we've got to settle that. right? And right here, Paul gives us a model for how we're supposed to deal with them. But before we get to that, we first got to ask, who causes division in the church? And how do we stop ourselves from becoming those people? Because I think that's pretty important, right? I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I'm going to propose that that is quite an important question to ask. Who is it that causes division in the church, and how do we stop ourselves from becoming those people? So Paul wants unity in the church, but it's not unity at all costs. The kind of unity Paul's wanting to encourage, 
and the kind of unity that God wants in his people is a unity of spirit that comes from insisting on these things. If you, if you insist on something, yeah, then there are some people who aren't going to like that, but that's not disunity in the way that Paul is talking about all that God wants in his church. It's actually a unity around those things that are being insisted on. A unity around the centrality of the gospel. A unity around sound doctrine. It's a unity that can put aside preferences and can put aside debatable issues and instead rally around the central tenets of the Christian faith. What are those central things? Things like the historic creeds and confessions of the church. Things that Christians throughout history for millennia now have agreed upon. And said, yes, that's what we believe as Christians. It's things like the fact that God created and sustains all things. Like the fact that men and women were created in God's image for relationship with him. That Jesus was fully man and fully God. That he was crucified and died in our place so that we might be forgiven and restored to right relationship with God. That he rose again, conquering death, so that all who hope in him, all who trust in him, might rise with him when he returns to eternal life that he ascended to heaven and is seated now at the right hand of the Father, that one day he'll return to judge the living and the dead, that Scripture is the authoritative word of God. These are the kind of things that we're talking about. They're essentials. They're, They're not up for debate. If you're a Christian, you believe those things, and if you don't believe those things, then historically and globally speaking, you're not a Christian. That's the kind of unity that we're talking about. Those are the kind of things that we're supposed to unite around. And so with that in mind, there are two kinds of people who stir up division in the church. Firstly, there are those who promote false teaching. There are those who undermine those kind of core things that we just talked about, who would say, oh, well, you don't really need to believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. I think when he was on earth, he, he was... Uh, you know, he, he was some kind of, he, he wasn't really fully man. He, the reason he could do what he did was because he wasn't really fully man. Or people who would take the same kind of thing and go, well, you know, you don't really need to put your trust in Jesus in order to be saved because uh, we're all going to get there in the end. There are those who promote false teaching and undermine the gospel, a bit like the circumcision party who were getting around the church on Crete and causing division there. People who won't accept and adhere to sound doctrine. People who distort the gospel and reject the authority of scripture. Those are some people who cause division in the church. Now, I actually think they're less common than the next group. And they're easier to spot. Because the second group are those who don't necessarily promote false teaching but they stir up division in the church over secondary issues or personal preferences. Now, unlike first century Crete, we now have many local churches. 
in all kinds of shapes and sizes. You know, Crete, the, the context Paul wrote this to, is just the first group of Christians there gathering together. Like they were it. They were the church on Crete. But you look around Wokingham or Bracknell or Reading today and there's, man, there's all kinds of churches going on. And they'll land in different places on secondary issues. We are to speak well of our brothers and sisters in Christ and extend love towards those who might come to a different conclusion on secondary issues to us. And as we do that, we avoid stirring up division on those things. But right here, in the context of Foundation Church, where might there be division over secondary issues? Well, there will be. I don't know whether you can believe that or not, but people in this room will disagree over secondary issues. Hmm. And how we handle that is really important for us to remain united and not give way to division in the church. So when we disagree on secondary issues that affect our practice, that affect what we do together as a church, what do we do so that we don't stir up division, so that we're not those people who Paul talked about. Well, for example, when we talk about whether we baptize babies or adults, or when we talk about whether women can or should serve as elders in the local church, or when the gifts of the Spirit are being talked about, whether they're still active today or not, whether we should eagerly pursue them or not, those things are ultimately secondary issues. You don't have to agree on those things to be a Christian. But what we believe about those things will impact what we practice at a local church. Like, will we baptize babies or not? That, that is kind of a, a big deal. That makes a difference, doesn't it? So what do we do? Because we've got to land somewhere. And we won't all agree. And so what we practice is that the leaders, those who will give an account to God for the way they lead the local church, must decide. That they must decide what they believe the Bible teaches on these things. Not lightly, not on a whim, but, but carefully and thoughtfully and with prayer. And they come to a settled place of, this is what we believe the Bible teaches, and therefore this is what we'll practice in this church. And as appropriate... Church members should submit to that because they're secondary issues. Now, I just want to be really clear on this. What I'm not advocating is some kind of like unthinking, blind obedience to church leaders. Like, throw your brain out and whatever the leaders say, that's what's happening. Because that's foolish. That's dangerous. And that can lead to abuse. I'm not advocating that. And actually, if leaders deny the gospel, if they teach or practice something that's clearly contrary to the counsel of Scripture, if they start eroding those first principles, those primary issues, then they need to be held to account. If they're abusive, then that, is, that clearly demonstrates that they have departed sound doctrine. 
and they need to be held to account. And so following these principles that Paul lays out here, you should talk to them, you should warn them. And if they don't hear, you should do it again. And if they still don't hear, then they should be removed. Or if that's not possible, then you should remove yourself and go to a church where there is healthy leadership in place. Where the leaders are faithful to scripture. And I want to say now, please do that with me. As we develop an eldership team here, do that with us. If we wander from the truth, call us back, hold us to account. It's one of the reasons that it's so vital what we looked at in chapter one, that we appoint healthy leaders like the ones described there, because if we do that, then that should be a good safeguard against this being an issue. But the truth is that most division in church, most pain and discontent in the local church isn't actually over issues of first importance. Most people leave churches over secondary issues. Most angry letters or emails are written to church leaders over secondary issues. Most slander and grumbling and undermining is over secondary issues. When you disagree with Leaders in the church, it's, it's easy to become someone who, in Paul's words, stirs up division. Our tendency when we disagree can be to end up talking about the issues we disagree on with other people rather than with the people we need to. It's easy in conversations to just begin subtly undermining the leadership of a church. expressing your view and openly questioning theirs with people who you're in relationship with and you spread division over secondary issues where you think you're right and they're wrong. You want people to know that you're right and they're wrong. It's such a common experience in the church today. That doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it right. Such a common experience that uh, Tim Chester, in his commentary on Titus, writes about it like this. He says, I see many people whose default position is to be suspicious of their church leaders over everything. Some people seem to assume it's their role to question everything the elders do. Sometimes they decide their leaders have made a good decision because they agree. And sometimes they complain their leaders have made a bad decision. But here's what they're doing. They're assuming they know the best, that they're the ones who should judge whether leaders are making good decisions or not. They're sitting in authority in their own hearts over their elders. Guys, it's essential for the health of the church and actually for our own spiritual life that we get this right. Just because it's always been an issue in the church, it doesn't mean we should resign ourselves to it or think it's okay. Paul's clear how we should respond what our attitude should be towards people who stir up division in that kind of way. We should love them. And instead of getting angry with them or turning our back on them or shunning them, we should care for them 
and desire to bring them back from their error. And so we talk to them. Not about them to others, because that just furthers division. That just, it's like, they're doing this, and so we just do it. That doesn't help anyone. But we talk to them. Warn them, Paul says. And if they don't hear us, we should warn them again. And if they still don't hear us, then the conclusion is a more uncomfortable one, which is that we should treat them as an unbeliever. This is essentially the same pattern Jesus gives in Matthew 18 for addressing sin in the church. But in the end, those who stir up division and refuse to turn and repent, Paul says, are warped and sinful. It's like their focus has shifted from the gospel. Their overemphasis on secondary issues has, has pulled them so out of shape. Their tendency to pick a fight over things, over matters of preference, just reveals the state of their hearts. And Paul says, if they won't hear, if they won't listen when you talk to them, when you go back and you, they still won't listen, they're so entrenched in their sin that they're self-condemned. So if someone comes to you in the church to gossip or grumble, don't entertain it. Don't listen. And certainly don't perpetuate it by having the conversation and then repeating it to others. If someone comes to you to grumble about someone else in the church, the leader or just someone else in the community, tell them you don't want to talk to them about it. And that they need to go and talk to the person they're grumbling about instead of grumbling about them to you. You can't do anything about it other than have your attitude towards that person warped and affected. You probably didn't have an issue with them before, but now you've heard that about them. Well, I'm not so sure about them now. Yeah, don't entertain it. Turn them around and say, I'm sorry, I don't want to hear you speak about someone in that way. Go and speak to them about it. Do what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Do what Paul says in Titus 3. Take it to them. If you know someone who's stirring up division, then talk to them. And in the end, as hard as it is, be prepared to have nothing more to do with them. That's what Paul says here. For your health, for the health of the church. If someone is repeatedly emphasizing controversies and talking down other people, They're not good for your health and they're not good for the health of the church. They're toxic. Warn them. Or if you're like the person Sam Albury described, grumbling, gossiping, spreading discontent, causing division. Stop it. <laughs> if you disagree on secondary issues, then biblically you've got a couple of options. And the first is, with a humble attitude, you should speak to the leaders. and Be prepared to agree to disagree. And secondly, you need to keep the main thing the main thing. Don't allow these secondary things that don't ultimately matter to sidetrack you and distract you. 
finally, in the flow of his closing words and personal greetings, Paul addresses our last attitude. And it's how our attitude should be towards Christians in need. And I so love the fact that Amir came and read to us and encouraged us to pray for brothers and sisters in need in Afghan at the moment, in Afghanistan. And Paul writes this, verse 12, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. The church in Crete, in this kind of final greeting, Paul says, are to meet the needs of Zenos and Apollos and send them onwards on their missionary journey. And they're to, de- learn, they're le- to learn to devote themselves to good works so that they will help the cases of urgent need. That their attitude towards other Christians in need should be one of generosity and a desire to do all they can to help, to meet need wherever they're able to meet need. Local churches need to look up and out of their local context to see the bigger picture in the body of Christ around the world. And one of the joys and privileges of our partnership with Advance is that actually we're meaningfully connected with other churches all over the world. And that helps us to cultivate a kind of care and concern and generous heart towards other Christians in need in other nations. People who we can support in prayer and sometimes with material need. That's why every month we pray for another advanced church, either in the UK or in another part of the world. Because it's important that we learn to cultivate this kind of heart and care and concern for other believers. That's why when we had our gift there a few weeks ago, and we shared with you about it, we committed to giving away 10% of whatever was given to churches in India and Nepal, who'd been so badly affected by COVID. And because of your generous giving, it was meant we've been able to send just over £7,000 into India and Nepal to support those churches in need at this point in time. Now, I hadn't actually planned on speaking about this section. I was just going to kind of miss this bit. Um, But while I was preparing, actually, I received an email from a friend in South Africa drawing my my attention to the needs of a particular family, Uh, a couple who moved from Cape Town to Madagascar a few years ago to plant a church there. And now this couple, uh, the Tuckers, Blake and Rachel, who I have met a couple of times, um, are working with a number of church plants in Madagascar, but they're in need right now. And so my friend emailed me and just said, I, I wonder if you might be able to help. I don't know, but, but I wonder if you could help. Rachel's very unwell and is needing to fly back to South Africa for an operation and as church planters in Madagascar, they just don't have the resource for the medical bills, they don't have the resource for the flights, they don't have the money to do it. And so he said, are you able to help? And so we've just begun a conversation as a team about what we might be able to do 
to help them. But I want to encourage you too, if, if you feel particularly stirred to help them in some way, if you think, I, we could probably give some money to help them get that flight and get that operation, then I want to encourage you to speak to Anne Hill or Dave Main about how you could do that. We want to be those who love our brothers and sisters around the world and who do what we can. We're not going to be able to do everything, but who do what we can out of a heart of generosity to meet needs. And so as we finish, I want to encourage you. Your attitudes towards others. Your attitudes towards false teaching and in response to the gospel. I guess I want to charge you, in a way, to keep the main thing the main thing. To not get hung up on secondary issues. To not get tripped up on controversies and dissension. To not major on those things, to not give our time and attention to those things unduly, but to insist on and to stress the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's remind each other and remember together the hope of the gospel that we have, the finished work of Christ, that we're no longer condemned. We're no longer slaves to sin, but instead we have freedom in him. An inheritance that we haven't earned and we don't deserve, but is a gift of grace because of what Christ did at the cross on our behalf. And as we remember and as we remind each other, let's, let's let it permeate <laughs> through our lives, to all our attitudes and all our dealings with others. Remember, if we humbly remember the grace of God towards us, then it guards us against being judgmental of others. If we hold fast to and emphasize sound doctrine, then it helps us to stay away from false teaching and avoid division over secondary issues. If we remember the generous generosity of God towards us in Christ Jesus, then it motivates us to be generous towards those in need. That's what happens. That's why Titus was told to stress it. That's why we want to give ourselves to being people who daily, consistently remind ourselves and remind each other of the hope that we have in Christ. And we're going to finish there. I'm going to pray and then hand over to Dave, Joe. We're going to take communion together.